Hello and welcome to the Thunder Buddies podcast. I am your host, Michael Martin. Barry, how are you doing today on this uh, fine afternoon? I'm doing fairly well, Michael. Doing doing pretty good. Ready for some more Thunder Brawl. This is the funnest, at least in three years, and you know you might say even longer. This is a uh, this is a fun team to watch. Yeah, can you imagine someone over the summer telling you that you'd be looking forward to a nine o'clock tip off game between the Kings and the Thunder? Well, you're talking about well, the Kings are up to third in the West. Thunder is currently, I think they fell back to ninth or was it tenth? Anyway, uh, yeah, two the two of the hottest teams in the league, and um, you know, two of the I don't know what the Kings' futures is, but it certainly looks brighter than has in a long time. And the Thunder, not not quite the desert that Sacramento's gone through two years compared to twenty, but still. Uh, a fun night. Uh, I was thinking, you know, I think ESPN tonight has uh, Lakers versus who? Nuggets or somebody. I can't remember. Lakers versus somebody because the Lakers are always on. And I remember thinking, is that what America really wants to watch? Do they really want to watch the Lakers again? It's Lakers Grizzlies. Right. Lakers Grizzlies. I mean, I actually have not seen the Kings. I don't think outside of they played the Thunder once, if I remember right. Um, but I don't think I've seen them all year. So I'm looking forward, not just the Thunder, I'm looking forward to seeing the Kings. Yeah, seeing Sabonis and some of those guys, it should be a lot of fun. But let's focus on something. I guess we can transition this with the Halliburton trade, even though he didn't play. But the Indiana Pacers lose to the Thunder, um, let's see, 126 to 106. The Thunder jump out to a big lead, 17 to 1. They hit the ground running for the fourth straight win and just lap the Pacers. The Pacers could not keep up and just hit him immediately, uh, punched him right in the mouth. What did you see in that one, Barry? Oh, I saw a uh, <clears throat> a Thunder squad that came out incredibly hot, about as hot as I've ever seen. I don't I forget what they make, their first seven shots or something kooky. Got off to 18-1 start or 17-1. And then I thought from the middle of the first quarter, about the time Dagnall started substituting, until end of the second quarter, I thought the Thunder got really sloppy, and I thought they were riding um, a hot hand shooting, which can can mask a lot of problems. They were they were loose with the ball. They weren't they weren't going after uh, you know loose balls. Turnovers were prevalent. All those things, but then they sort of righted themselves and burst away again and, and routed the Pacers. So. Um, I thought it was a pretty instructive game because I thought it was, you know, when you route somebody, it's hard to do much teaching. But I thought that was a really good opportunity for Dagnall to show the film to the guys and say, listen, it's a game we should have won easy. And we did win easy, but we won easy because after playing this terrible way for about six, eight, ten minutes, whatever it was, we got back on board. We can't play this way. We got to protect the basketball. We're not. Even though we're shooting really well, we're not a bunch of Clay Thompsons and, and Steph Currys. We gotta we gotta act like the ball is valuable. So I thought it was a very instructive game for the Thunder. Yeah, this felt a little bit like a trap game to me. Just coming home after a three game uh, win streak on the road, and you come against a team who doesn't have their best player. Maybe you're a little bit down. Maybe you're a little bit overconfident. The Thunder were definitely confident, and I could feel that. And maybe. You know, there's a fine line between confidence and cockiness, and I think that they got into that a little bit, like you mentioned, the second quarter where they got a little bit sloppy. But they came out really strong, 11 assists on their first 12 baskets in the first quarter, and just were really getting the ball around. The third quarter Thunder feel just inevitable right now. Yeah, then and you know they're getting a lot of help from a lot of different off the bench, of course, and um, you know the three point ball keeps just falling for this team. I don't know exactly how. But um, I don't know if it'll keep up. But for now, this is a really good offensive team. It's very out of the ordinary. Uh, Unexpected is the right word. Very unexpected. And the longer it goes, the more you sort of rely on it. And the more you think, hey, this really might be what we're going to see out of this team. A friend of mine yesterday said something. He said, I never thought we'd say, but. This Thunder team might have enough shooting. I actually don't believe that, but it is a Thunder team that is playing without a pretty good shooter in in Robinson Earl. 
and playing the whole season without Chet Holmgren, who's projected to be a very good shooter. So, you know, Thunder hasn't been much of a shooting team for low these many years, but that could be changing. Yeah, it was a it's sight for sore eyes if you just have Isaiah Joe and it's like we we finally have enough shooting. It's like no, it's just it's been bad for a while. Whenever you're relying on Anthony Morrow and Daquan Cook and Randy Foy and some of those guys that they had over the years. I I, I pl- I've made a decision. Anybody who brings up the fact that Daquan Cook was actually a pretty good shooter for the Thunder gets my salute because people forget that he was actually a pretty good shooter. Um, there have been years in, you know, he's been gone, what, 10, 12 years? I can't remember. But ever how long he's been gone, been t- a lot of times in in since then that Thunder would have tried to Daquan Cook out there and let him play 25 minutes a game. The shooting has been so sparse. So, plaudits to you, Mr. Mur- uh, Mr. Uh, Michael Martin Murphy. I appreciate it. Yeah, Isaiah Joe was on a burner speaking his shooting. He goes and ties his career high of seven three-pointers made. He goes seven of 12 from three and just played with all this confidence. And it is just so nice to have that release valve. I think that you are right about some of the shooting. It feels sort of feast or famine from this team. Isaiah Joe's been a pretty consistent force shooting the ball. But the rest of the guys, it feels like it's very up and down. Yeah, which heck, maybe that's the way it goes if you're not an elite shooter, but the Thunder's got some, you know, what they've done is their, their bad shooters have gotten mediocre. You know, um, what we've seen out of Josh Giddy's remarkable. He's not a very good shooter, but, or he wasn't, but he's turned into a, you know, a so-so shooter from deep. What do I think he's at 33 still? Is that right? Let me look it up right here. Uh, yeah, uh, Giddy's thirty-three percent. Yeah, he's shooting around fifty, forty, ninety since December first. And and Dort's at thirty-five. SGA's at thirty-four point five. I mean, that's the guys that play the most minutes, take the most shots. But if that's your bo- your bad guys, you know, uh, Santa Clara Williams twenty-nine percent. That's your four guys who lead the lead the team in minutes played. So they're getting some good. They're getting some good. Uh, performances out of the other guys. You know, Kenrich Williams is back to being a dead eye. Um, Aaron Wiggins is, is really solid from deep. Muscala is is uh, completely reliable. And, and, of course, Isaiah Joe is having a uh, an unbelievable year. So um, this is not a great shooting team. I think yesterday they were still 16th or 17th in three-point percentage. But when you've come from... 28th, 29th, 30th in the league, it feels like just a rash of great shooting. Yeah, absolutely. They were um they've been really shooting the ball this well um uh, well this season. A lot of guys have improved and it feels still like there's a lot of room of uh, for improvement, especially a guy like J Dub who's a 40% three-point shooter in college who's probably just more adjusting to the three-point line. I don't think people realize just how much of a difference it is from college to the NBA. It's it's a sizable leap on that shot. Yeah, I I, I would agree. Um, you know the the one thing when when you talk about the three point game in this Thunder team, they've been going without Poku and JRE, and those guys have shot pretty good before their injuries. And uh, sometimes my mind gets sort of mystified at you know. They've both of them have their shortcomings, but both are playing pretty well. Is that has has the offensive uptick? Is it because those guys aren't playing, or is it in spite of them missing games? I'm interested to see what happens when they sort of get back in the flow. Um, but when you look at those guys, I mean, Poco or Poco, Poku 37.6 percent, I think he was, and uh, JRE was 38.2. So all of a sudden, the Thunder has a bunch of guys that can make a shot, and that's just not anything we're accustomed to. You know, even goofy Darius basically shooting 35% from deep. Yeah, I so, wouldn't say that they're succeeding in spite of those guys. I think a lot of it just is Josh Giddey's playing really, really well and playing really good basketball right now. And you mentioned yeah. Kenrich, who's been a dead eye. And a lot of these teams that they're playing against, they're just throwing out all these weird wings out there and saying, we dare you to guard them on the perimeter. They're still getting 
hit on the glass like we've talked about offensive rebounds defensive rebounds where maybe poku or jre could help but those guys i'm based on the conversations i've had and like talking to the different people around the team i'm not anticipating those guys are coming back anytime soon poku i saw in the arena after the game the other night with um he had crutches on that were taller than you and i <laughs> yeah um i sometimes forget jre has uh uh, is even on the team and it's he's only been gone what six weeks seven weeks but it seems like forever since he's played but um but yeah they like you know the, what the thunder's doing is basically they're really succeeding in playing small and when they play somebody like Embiid or Jokic they say you know what those guys tear up the best teams in the league so we're not going to sweat it we're just going to play and see what happens and Jokic will generally just, you know, tear him up every time. They got out of town. They got out of Philly with a victory over Embiid. So sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But that's going to happen if you got, you know, if you got Holmgren and and, and Twin Towers out there. So uh, I like this incarnation of the Thunder with the, you know, sort of the unicorns, no position players. It's uh, you know, the other night I guess it was Indiana where. Kenrich started at center, right? Yes. That means I meant the tallest guy, the tallest starter for the Thunder was Josh Giddy. That, that was their tallest starter. It was Josh Giddy, who is basically a point guard, plays on the wing, you know, a lot of the times with SGA, but out there. But basically the, the point guard is the uh, tallest player uh in the starting lineup. So it's a it's a very unique, eclectic Thunder team that's that's they're trotting out there. It's interesting lineups because like you mentioned, like we've talked about, they don't have a traditional center or a traditional center size right now with Chet out. But what they do have is to counteract that is they have supersized guys at every other position around the center. So you have like Lou Dort, who's not super tall, but is as strong as an ox and just huge. Uh, Josh Giddy, who you mentioned, is like 6'9", 6'10", as a point guard. And then you have uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander and J Dub, who are both around six six with around seven foot wingspans, so it makes up for it in different ways to have huge guards, even though you don't have a giant big down there anchoring in the middle. But like you said, no one's stopping Embiid or Jokic. You just got to do your best. So maybe having a guy like Kenrich who just antagonizes them is a, a good way to go about it. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I and, and of course they, you know, Mark they don't doesn't go cuckoo. I mean, he started Arkansas Williams, I think. When they played Philly last week, I think yes, and I, you know, he's not going to he's not going to start somebody like Kenrich Williams or Aaron Wiggins or anybody on on uh, trying to guard Jokic or or Embiid um, start a game, but they do they do go at times trying to trying to uh, you know get by in the middle of games with that kind of lineup, and it and it puts a little bit of pressure on Jokic and Embiid. They have to chase around a Kenrich Williams or whoever else they might put them on, Arkin or I mean Santa Clara, whoever it is. I don't know, but um, it's it's sort it's got to be fun for Dagnall to have a team like this because he can mix and match so much. There's really no rhyme or reason to what the heck is going on. It, this is a very difficult team to scout, I would think, in terms of in terms of uh, getting past. You know SGA. You know you know what you got to do to stop SGA. Doing it's the hard part, not knowing what to do. But when you're scouting the team, just figuring out what you're what you need to focus on can be difficult because the Thunder's just you know he, he'll play eleven. I think he played eleven players in the first quarter. What uh, Wednesday night? So. I mean that's that's gonna make the 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 assistant coach who have who has the Thunder Scout, it's gonna make their head spin. Gotta make their head spin. Yeah, you have two weeks of uh Aaron Wiggins not playing at all and then a three game stretch where he starts and they win every game. So it's just up and down. You don't really know who's gonna be in the rotation. Darius Baisley was basically exiled, and then the last couple games he's gotten some good running and played some good basketball. But just to wrap it up on the Pacers game, a couple of guys did have career highs with Lou Dort had a new career high of eleven rebounds. 
Kenrich Williams broke his personal record with 10 assists. And then overall, I was just really impressed because usually you'll see Shea sit out at the end of the game and it's when it's a blowout, but it's never really the Thunder blowing out the other team. But he had 23 points on 7 of 17 shooting with 5 rebounds and 6 assists. He didn't even play in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and um, a little bit of a bit of a bittersweetness to that because he's generally good for 8 to 10 11, 12, fourth quarter points. Gets a lot of fouls at the end of games. I saw where he's done, you know, his his scoring average is now down to 30.5, I think. Um, Fourth in the league. I sure would like to see the guys stay stay above the 30 mark. So, you know, these blowout wins come at a cost. Yeah, it's interesting. And then another interesting thing is it looks like Usman Jang is coming back to the blue this week. He just got reassigned after a second wrist injury, but should be very nice to see him. I mentioned that I don't think that JRE and Poku are probably going to be back for a while. So if they can get any other live bodies, I think that'd be really nice. And Jang in his limited time has shown some flashes. I was really getting fond of Jang when he got hurt. He was starting to make a few threes. He, you know, he's a good passer. He seems to see the court. He's he's sort of a a unicorn. You really don't know what he's going to be, but he does so much stuff that you know he's going to do something. So I thought it was uh, a uh, a misfortune time to to get hurt. But he's a guy you also don't think of. Plus, he's only nineteen years old for crying out loud. So. I mean, that's a guy that no telling what he can be. Um, you wonder, hey, if, if this team gets good and becomes a you know playoff regular in a couple of years, they could have a, a blossoming 21-year-old that's ready to spread his wings. So lots of lots of good, lots of good uh future uh future uh, blossoms coming uh, the Thunder's way. Um, and we thought to get to that point, we were going to have to suffer through some, yeah, you know, some sort of blah basketball, but this season has been the opposite has been really fun. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs. I don't know if they can, but it certainly looks promising at this point. We're just going to enjoy the ride, but Usman Jang, I mean, he's a guy who they drafted before J-Dub. They used three first round picks to go get him. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, who fits best next to Chet. Should they trade for somebody? Maybe he's already on the roster on Jang and we just don't know yet. But I'm very excited to see him play uh, in these upcoming games. Hopefully he'll get recalled from the blue soon whenever he gets back to 100 percent. Yeah. And um, I don't know if, uh, you know, I don't know what kind of player he's he's going to be. He is. He, he's a little bit of what. Baisley was billed as a tall guy who can facilitate. Turns out that was not what Baisley is, but you could see some of it with with Zhang. He's got, you know, the shooting. He, he what's interesting about Zhang is he really can't shoot a lick, but man, he thinks he can. So for now, that's a good thing. For now, that's a good thing. Confidence. You don't want him to take you know, misplaced confidence into the heat of, of pivotal games. But somewhere along the line, he got confidence. So uh, I'm 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 buying on 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 Jang at this point. Yep, Jang gang over here. He's a guy who's a multi-tool defender already. I mean, that's been the most impressive part to me is just how he operates on defense and he doesn't really foul guys. He's a good passer. He's high basketball IQ. Like you mentioned, the shot is coming along, but it is still so crazy to think that he's only 19. And a big part of like, I think that is holding him back a little bit is just the language barrier of coming over from France. I mean, there's a couple of guys who speak French on the team, but yeah, moving across the world at 19 and learning a whole different language in a whole new league has got to be difficult. Yeah. Um, the thunder, I would think is fairly accustomed to that because they've been such an international type team over the years. I mean, on, um, I'm going back just in the last three years, French speakers, we got, we got Maladon, we got uh, Horde. Um, now both of them are gone, of course, 
Uh, who else is a, a French speaker? Lou Dort was undrafted, but he was Lou Gens Dort from Montreal, of course. Yeah, so um, it could be worse. And the the Thunder, I think, is pretty well equipped at that. Of course, Thunder played seven years with Serge Ibaka, who spoke six languages, three or four fluently. So you know, he was a he was a one man uh, he was a one man uh, uh, language uh, uh, genius. So. Hopefully that will, hopefully the Zhang situation will work out pretty good. I don't know what it's like on the G League. You know, I know many of the, uh, many of the uh, old uh, team enhancements, many of the, of the, uh, the personnel that help with a lot of things. A lot of that's available for the G Leaguers, but not all of it. So I don't know. Like road trips, what those are like if if Zhang's going to hit the road with the with the blue, but hopefully he's back up with the Thunder pretty quickly. Hopefully, but the Thunder rebuild overall is just ahead of schedule. I wanted to ask you, what were your expectations going into this season? Because it feels like it's blown a lot. Of, uh, this team has blown everybody's expectations out of the water. Um, I was uh, not very optimistic. I I thought that the Thunder would probably have a you know, a year similar to what we've seen the last two years, um, and and maybe better if SGA played the whole year. Um, you know, the Thunder wasn't terrible. Thunder was actually pretty good. I shouldn't. Pretty good's the wrong word. They were competitive two years ago until they shut down Al Horford. I think they were nineteen and twenty-four. And then SGA, when you know, it just fell apart. And last year, same thing after SGA's injury and Giddy got hurt. And, um, so they weren't they weren't terrible before that. And I thought it might go the same way. I thought Thunder would be a little bit better, but would probably do some shutting down in February or maybe March. But what's happened is, even regardless of the win-loss record or the competitive level, the fact that SGA blossomed into a superstar, now he's, you know, in the, in the running for all kinds of things, including all NBA. Thunder's not going to shut that down. Um, so SGA is going to, you know, barring injury, he's going to play. And when he plays, they're going to be pretty good. So I like a lot of uh, the, the circumstances have created it that, that I thought – what I thought in terms of the depths of the lottery, fifth, sixth, again, something like that, have created a, a situation where that's not likely anymore. Yeah, they've really blossomed this year. I was in the same camp as you as I thought it was going to be. They were going to be around the fifth to eighth worst record in the league. Um, I didn't think they would be in a position where they could shut down guys super early, like in the past couple of years. But like you mentioned, maybe in late March to April, something like that happens. But at this point, there's no way they can do that. Unless there's some crazy injury that happens, which knock on wood, we hope that doesn't happen. But Vegas had the Thunder's total uh, win total over under at 23.5 before the season. They're currently already up to 22 wins with 37 games remaining. And um, <laughs> it, it's pretty crazy. I mean, they, they're definitely overachieving. But I wanted to ask you about because you did your research earlier this season about the best rookie years in Thunder history. How do you think that J-Dub is fitting into some of that? Because I think you had Giddy third. Harden second, Nabaka first. Is that what I did? Uh, that, well, I, whatever I did, I stand by. Um, I would say that I don't. I don't think Santa Clara moves into the third spot. Um, just because I think Giddy was, you know, pretty pretty resourceful last year, but he's clearly. You know, I, I, he probably is going to be fourth. I'm trying to think who I had at four. But, um, you know, the Thunder went so long without impactful rookies because of where they were drafting primarily. So um, I'm thinking Russell Westbrook, sure. Stephen Adams, maybe in that mix. Well, well, I don't know. So I had Westbrook. Oh, yeah. Westbrook would be above. Would be above. I had Giddy over Westbrook. I'm not for sure. I know the top two, I think, were... I know Serge was one, is what yeah, I Serge remember for and sure. Harden. Surely I had Westbrook third, because Westbrook is pretty good as a rookie. 
Um, I would say that the Adams Santa Clara is pretty close. The difference being Adams did a lot of it or did a lot in the playoffs. You know, he they went that was 14. They went to that that Memphis series and he basically helped them get over the hump in that series. He basically that's basically when he took the job away from Kendrick Perkins. It was in that 14 playoff series against Memphis when they said, hey, we got a guy that can match up with Randolph and, and Gasol a lot better. And he's, you know, this rookie from New Zealand. So, yeah, I, I, it's going to be hard, I think, to pass Stephen Adams. Yeah, that was a season where Stephen Adams got punched in the playoffs and then uh, yeah, Randolph gets Randolph suspended in game seven. Miss, misses set game seven. Stephen Adams gets you nowhere because he doesn't even know what happens. Um, unless you unless you hit him in the right place, like Jay, uh, you know Draymond Green did. But anyway, um, he's right. He's right there below those guys. Uh, or, or, or even with Adams, minus the playoff situation, he's really good, and I think he's going to get better. And you know that starting with that three point shot needs to improve. Uh, the the one thing I want. Let me ask you. You think? opponents are starting to game plan better for Santa Clara because he's either had two terrible games in a row or two out of the last three. He had to, was it Brooklyn where he went 0 for 9? Yeah, he he was really bad in that one shooting and wise. He, and then his shooting wasn't very good the other night against Indiana. So I don't know if, if people are paying more attention to him or he's just hit, you know, you play long enough, you're going to have all kinds of things happen to you. I think some teams are making it where he can't get to the lane as easy because I think he's like shooting 70% or something at the rim, which is just ridiculous. That's probably not something that's going to keep up. I mean, that's like Shaq numbers down there. So yeah. that that's crazy. And then I think a lot of it is kind of it's tough because I think he can play well without shooting the ball well, if that makes sense. I think there are some guys where it's very dependent, like Trey Mann, where it's like if you're not shooting well, you're not playing well. But J-Dub can impact the game in a variety of ways. And just him being like the third or fourth guy, it's just harder to stop or game plan, I guess, because you're obviously Shea's number one on your scouting port, scouting report, and then it's Giddy and then maybe Dort and some other guys. So the outlets where you're wanting Giddy and Shea to pass are hitting J-Dub. So some of that I think other teams are going to have to live with, but maybe he's hitting somewhat of the, the rookie wall here. But he's been pretty efficient throughout the season. Yeah, he has. And you know, he's become everybody's favorite dunker. So that, you know, that'll always help you. Dunking the ball will always help your field goal percentage. And he's a guy that I can say, you know, I get frustrated when big men who can dunk it, don't dunk it. Just drives me nuts. If you can dunk it, dunk it. That's the best shot. And Santa Clara, any chance he gets to dunk it, he dunks it. So I applaud him for that bit of maturity because a lot of other NBA if you can't get a spectacular dunk, it's almost like people think it's cooler to drop it in or shoot a layup or whatever. But, you know, Poku's a little bit victim of that. But, boy, Santa Clara, when he gets a chance to dunk it, he dunks it. Jalen Williams this season, more dunks than Joel Embiid. Really? Really. Well, that's crazy. Somebody ought to do a dissertation on that. That'd be a good... That would be a really good uh, PhD project for somebody, or maybe just a master thesis. No reason to get crazy. Yeah, I'd, I'd do that if you if anyone wants to pay for the tuition for that. But uh, I think we'll we'll stick with this. But you mentioned the Grizzlies earlier with Stephen Adams playing in that playoff series, and I wanted to talk about because the Thunder are overachieving and compare them to some of the other teams that have taken a leap over the last couple of years, starting with the Memphis Grizzlies who in 1920, they lose in the play-in during the bubble to the Portland Trail Blazers off a last shot, I think, that uh, C.J. McCollum hit, or maybe he got a stop on John Morant. Yeah, I remember that, yep. And then in 2021, they beat the Warriors in the play-in and then lose to the Jazz in five in the first round. And then last season, the Grizzlies have the second-best record in the West. They beat the Wolves in six in a really fun first-round matchup and then have a really competitive six-game series where they lose to the eventual champions uh, in six to the Golden State Warriors. They play the last three of the six games without John Morant after he got injured, but they pushed the Warriors about as far as any team did, including the Celtics last year. Well, they certainly look primed for the long haul because they got a superstar in Morant. 
they got a star, not probably ready to call him a superstar, but they got a star in Jaron Jackson Jr. who can do all kinds of things, including protect the rim about as good as anybody and has a pretty interesting offensive arsenal. And then they got a bunch of role players, including everybody's all-time favorite, Stone Cold Stephen Adams. And Desmond Bain is, you know, getting his way into stardom. All at a young age, or fairly, I shouldn't say all, most at a pretty young age, uh, some advantageous contracts, um, guys tied up for at least a while. Um, they they seem set for the long haul to win quite a while. It's a fast-changing league. You can't be sure about anything, but it sure looks like it sure looks like Memphis is set for a pretty good run here. Yeah, they're in a position yeah. for a pretty big trade at some point. They still have a few picks. Yeah, that's right. You know, some people said they should have went in on Durant in in the summer when he was wanting out of Brooklyn, and that would have that made them holy terrors. I, I don't I don't know that the league would have been able to deal with that. They might have, you know, we might have been back to a, this this thing's over. That would have been incredibly fun. But yeah, John. Um... Desmond Bain are one of the best backcourts in the NBA. It's pretty interesting. But just watching their upward trajectory round as they go from losing in the play-in to winning in the play-in to losing in the second round, thought that was interesting. And then we'll move on. The Cleveland Cavaliers last season were the surprise team of the NBA. They had a top-four record in the East for a long chunk of the season before injuries kind of derailed them. They ended up losing in back-to-back play-in games versus the Nets and Hawks. But that offseason catapulted them as they then trade for Donovan Mitchell after having some signs of uh, life for that team with Evan Mobley um, and Darius Garland and some of that crew. And Jared Allen, that's the name I was forgetting, was on the tip of my tongue. But they trade for Donovan Mitchell, and now that's just completely flipped their season where now they're in the fourth or fifth spot tied with the Brooklyn Nets in the East. Yeah, you know, in my mind, the Cavaliers or the closest thing to the Thunder. In terms of, if you look at the progression the Thunder's making, it mostly mimics the Cavaliers. Now, Thunder hasn't made the big trade for Donovan Mitchell, and maybe not, so the, you know those paths may diverge. But um, it seems to me that the Thunder is, is about where the Cavaliers were a year ago. Now, as you said, Thunder's, the Cavs got off to the, Quick start, fell back last season, opposite of this Thunder team, which got off to sort of, you know, so so not very good start. It's coming on strong. But in terms of pretty good nucleus, um, and then makes a, a draft pick, Giddy uh, as one, um, compared to Evan Mobley. Um, so, uh, it, it's not it's not a great likeness, but it's the closest one I think, and it's a to me it's a very good it's affirmation that you know you can the the the, the steps you're taking for long term building can come to fruition, and we've seen it with Cleveland, and we're starting to see it with Oklahoma City. And then the last team I had on the list was the New Orleans Pelicans, who beat the Spurs and the Clippers last year in the play in back to back to make the playoffs. They face off as the eight seed against the number one Phoenix Suns. The Pelicans put up a competitive fight, losing in six games despite Zion Williamson not even playing in the series. This season, they took a leap with Zion now in the lineup, and they are now tied with the uh, previously mentioned Sacramento Kings for the third and fourth spot in the West. Yeah, um, I'm interested with New Orleans. They look... Long term, they look better set than any draft picks, and they do. They've gone a long way with Zion not playing up to his potential, at least in terms of quantity, maybe quality as well. They've had a lot of injuries, so not everything's gone right for them, and they're still, you know, where they're at. They just don't seem as solid as Memphis. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the idea that you can trust Morant more than you can trust Zion. Maybe it's the idea that Jaron Jackson long-term's a better building block than Brandon Ingram. 
maybe it's the idea that New Orleans has been screwing up draft picks forever. So why, why, why is that going to change now? I don't know. But just on paper, long term, the Pelicans is where it's at. Um, so, um, you know, the Thunder has some great draft situations coming up, but they'd probably trade draft futures with the, with the Pelicans just because of some of those Pelican moves have a chance to really pay off uh, uh, in the high lottery. So um, I'm just not as sold on them, and, and a lot of that is probably just, like I said, it's probably just trusting Morant more than I trust Zion. But clearly, you know, clearly what we're seeing is a changing of the guard in the West. And the only thing that's going to stop that is the notion which we talked about is how everything changes quickly these days. But it sure looks like three, four, five years from now, the Warriors, the Lakers, the Clippers, they're going to have to really scramble to keep up with the likes of the the Pelicans, the Grizzlies, maybe the Thunder, who knows. That was exactly the next thing I was going to bring up, the changing of the guard, the passing of the torch, just a new generation of Western Conference teams. I'm not ruling out the Suns, the Warriors, or Clippers for this season or maybe even next season, but it feels like the future is here and it's kind of beating down the door with teams like the Nuggets, the Grizzlies, the Pelicans, the Mavericks, and as we said, maybe the Thunder are primed to take hold of the West. Um just over the 2010s up until 2023, it was sort of dominated the Western Conference by the Spurs, the Warriors, and the Thunder. Out of those 13 seasons, 10 of the conference finals involved at least two, uh, at least one of those three teams. Yeah. You know, um, it's a little different than what we saw 12 years ago. How, how, let me ask you, Michael, how old were you in 2010? 2010, I was around 12 years old, 13 years old. 12 years old. All right. So I assume, you know, from what I know about you, it sounds like you probably jumped all over the thunder when they came to town and you were flying the flag and paying attention. Were you paying attention at 12 years old? I was doing my best. Yes. I remember a lot of those runs. So year one, they were terrible, but they had Kevin Durant and this Westbrook character looked interesting. And we thought, you know, the future's bright. And then year two, Viola. Here it is. Yeah. They win 50 games. Oh, wow, look at this. They go to the playoffs and scare the crap out of the Lakers with Paul Gasol and Ron Artest and Kobe Bryant. So that was our introduction to rebuilding is here you, you go plant a seed and you go out one year and, you know, you got a little – twig and then you know the next year there's a little twig and the next year you got a you know you got an oak tree 40 feet high it's generally not how it works so this reincarnation is not that way we've you know this is a blossoming thunder season but they're 22 and 23 they're not 50 and 32 we promise people are taking notice you know i saw where zach lowe VSPN, probably their most astute NBA analyst in terms of the teams, not contracts necessarily or that thing, but the basketball side of it, what's happening on the court. He he led his, his weekly column this week with the Thunder and said they might make the playoffs. And he said, and if they do, it might be a long time before they ever miss it again. So – there's a blossoming aspect to this Thunder season, but it's nothing like 13 years ago. Um, the future is vast for the Thunder. They don't have the star power of New Orleans and Memphis in terms of the two. That's where Chet Holmgren hopefully comes in. That's where Josh Giddy hopefully comes in. Um, maybe Santa Clara Williams. We'll see. It's still an evolving blossom, I would say. So I, I think it's interesting to see where, you know, how it goes. But it sure is fun to know that, like Memphis. Memphis is on course. It's a really good course, but you don't have to sit and wonder, what's this team going to be? What's it going to do? 
you just you wonder how it's going to do, how it's going to fare. But you know what it's going to be. It's going to be Jaron Jackson and Jal Morant and Desmond Bain and these other guys doing this, this, and this. You know that. You don't know what the Thunder's going to do. We don't know. The giddy SGA pairing seems really promising, dual point guards. But we don't really know what that's going to look like. We have no idea what Chet Holmgren's going to look like. So, you know, it's to me, it's it's all fascinating. It's all fascinating. Yeah, it's a really interesting season, and next year is going to be even more interesting. Yeah, the Grizzlies, um, they're a team who's ready to compete, and it's just a matter of how far they can go, but they're in that conversation. The Thunder are in their way, on their way, trying to even get in the room to be mentioned the conversation for a lot of these things. So they're a ways away. You mentioned it with a lot of uh, the things where the Thunder, the first season, they're bad, and then the next season, immediately 50 wins, and they go to the playoffs. That team just beat down the door and said, we're ready to go. Whereas this iteration of the Thunder, it's almost like archaeology, where it's like you're just digging a hole, digging a hole. You're like, I wonder if anything's actually in here. And then you finally hit something, and then you're brushing it off, and it's slowly like revealing itself. And it feels like this iteration of the Thunder is starting to present itself, where you can kind of see the roadwork or the blueprint of like, oh, this is what they're building. Like there's actually, there's not only is there something here with SGA and Giddy, but you can see some of like how it might work eventually long-term. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, if I'm, if I'm Mark Dagnall, I gotta be, I gotta enjoy waking up every day and going to work because he literally has all kinds of options every day to, to, to experiment with, the mix and match, you know. I don't, let me ask you, Michael. When when the NBA came to town in 2005, the first two or three games, four games a week, whatever it was, I noticed, hey, he's taking Chris Paul out at the four-minute mark or whatever it was and putting Speedy Claxton in. And then the next game at the four-minute mark, he took Chris Paul out, put Speedy Claxton. And all of a sudden I realized, hey, he's got a rotation in his mind. And I figured out most NBA coaches are that way. Now they they change it from time to time. They do variations. But I really never knew that, you know, college guys, they just, you know, they'll yeah. substitute every time, every time the whistle blows. Just gives them something to do because they don't know what else to do. But the NBA guys, they got a plan. It's almost like a, a scheduled rotation of substitutions. And the only thing I can outside of outside of knowing SGA's rotation, and because of that, Giddy's. There's not much you can make out of Mark Dagnalt's. He's liable to do anything. Yeah, he's the, liable to put anybody in the game. He's liable to not play you. He's liable to play you a bunch. I mean, he he's he really seems to just let's see what works. And he's got to be enjoying the crap out of this. Yeah, I asked him if he's like being like a mad scientist. And he said something about it's been great working with great guys. So we kind of dodged that one, which was fun. But there are four constants in the rotation. That's J-Dub, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Josh Giddey, and Lugans Dort. And like you mentioned, the rest of that, it's just kind of plugging holes of whatever fits that night and whoever's playing well and can fit next to those guys. But those are the main constants. But yeah. Shea, he's has his same sort of rotations every single game. He plays the entire first quarter. He sits out the first six minutes of the second quarter, checks in for the last six minutes, plays the entire third quarter, and then same in the fourth. He will sit the first six minutes and then play the last six minutes. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, I just think I, I, I found myself really intrigued by who's going to be the first guy off the bench. Now, in recent games, I will say this. Isaiah Joe makes a quick appearance. <laughs> he's he's not going real fun to see who's coming into the game. Yeah, he's the break in case of emergency shooter that they just have at all times to get a little bit extra spacing. Yeah. And then um, we were talking about Mark for this last part of the pod. Um, I just wanted to ask you if this is a crazy thought or not, <laughs> but should Mark be in the discussion for coach of the year, like the top three, top five? I don't think he's a guy who can win it, but the guys out there right now that come to mind are like Mike Brown in San Antonio, Michael Malone in Denver, Joe Mazzula in Boston, Willie Green in New Orleans and Taylor Jenkins in Memphis. I don't know if I'm missing anybody, but it feels like he should have a decent case based on how this team has developed and the preseason expectations and where they're 
sort of headed at this point? Well, I would, <clears throat> you put a qualifier on there. So I would say uh, top three would be crazy. Top five would not be. I guess that's the way I I would think it. Uh, the only guy I could think of that, that would merit addition to your list would be Jacques Vaughn because he took over an insane asylum and had it going really well till Durant got hurt again. So, um, uh, but Degnault is an up and comer in this discussion and in this league. I think, you know, the next way people are sort of opening, you know, the first thing that's happened this year was the nation sort of realized, Hey, this SGA guy is really good. He's an all-star. He might be a superstar. He's all NBA. That was sort of a revelation here in the last month or two. In recent weeks, the revelation, as we've talked about, is, hey, this team's pretty good. This team could actually make the playoffs. I think the next stage of that is, is the NBA intelligence. Couldn't pick him out of a lineup, but he's a good coach. They play hard. They got great sets. He does all kinds of things. You don't, he keeps you off balance. So I think I think the respect for Mark Dagnall is going to keep going up and up and up. Um, he's been under the radar for two two years. Under the radar is an understatement. I know last year, yeah. last year he was on the coach of the year ballot and they put him under Mike Dagnall. They didn't even get the <laughs> the name right. It was the the easier name they got wrong. Yeah, well that's that's a good yeah that's exactly right. So I think. That's the next. That's the next step. Is uh, you know, and, and it helps if you get on TNT or even ESPN, and and some of the big names talk about you. And I'm not talking about. I'm I'm, I'm talking about in game, because the TNT crew, you know, they're not going to do. They don't really talk about coaches much. And I would guess that Shaq and and Barkley still don't know who Mark Dagnall is. But it, when Stan Van Gundy or or Jeff Van Gundy, or Reggie Miller, or whoever, start talking about you, that raises your profile. It just does. Yeah, that's just how it works. And it feels like with the players, and it's happening with the coaches, there's another change in the guard where some of the older style, um, authoritative coaches like a Tom Thibodeau, uh, Steve Clifford are kind of getting phased out for this new generation of guys like Mark, Taylor Jenkins, um, Joe Missoula, Will Hardy in Utah, and others who are just a little bit I'd say player friendly and more, I guess, analytics minded than the uh, past generations of coaches. Yeah, um, you'll you'll always have variations on that. Not everybody is going to go with a Dagnall type. Uh, there are some organizations that will go with a personality type, um, a, a big name or uh, an accomplished player. Um, so some of that just depends. And you, you got some that'll go for both. Um, the Thunder, I don't think, in other words, let's think, of, you know, Westbrook's really not a good example, but I don't know who would, you know, Derek Fisher, Derek Fisher, sort of a, a low key, a low key iconic Thunder. Cause he, you know, he was the sixth man on some really good teams. Um, I don't think the Thunder would ever, pull the string or, 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 or you know, say, let's, let's hire Derek Fisher as our coach. But there are lots of places that would, and some of them are successful. Hey, when Dallas replaced Rick Carlisle uh, with Jason Kidd, I thought, well, that's idiotic. But I think Kidd's done a pretty good job. They've been playing defense, and the team's at the same performance level to a large degree. Um, so I'm not indicting any of the philosophies, but there are – it franchises like the Thunder that says, you know, we want an analytical guy. Uh, that mean an analytics guy necessarily, but an analytical guy, a guy that looks and tries to study what has happened and what works and, and figures out how to make that even better. And that's what Mark Dagnall does. So, um, you know, we'll see more of that, but I don't think we'll ever see it wholesale throughout the league that way i agree it's a copycat league and you had it at times where like nick nurse was the up-and-coming guy out of the g league and they win a championship and other guys other teams are like well why can't we get our version of nick nurse and then of course the lakers win it with um frank vogel he's more of an older style coach mike right. budenholzer and then back to steve kerr 
So it's a copycat league. It just goes up and down with whoever's winning and whatever styles winning. That's what a lot of teams are going to copy. So it should be interesting, but I'm, I'm very excited about Mark's future as a head coach. Yeah, I, I need to write about him. In fact, I plan to do that next weekend. He's, um, he's doing an unbelievable job. And it's it's becoming pretty clear that he is he, – he's got that special something. Now, there's some things we don't know about him. Can he coach superstars who can get, you know, to, you know, be hard to coach? You know, people like to rip Scotty Brooks, but, you know, you go try and coach a 24-year-old Durant and Westbrook. Yeah, who are just leaping and taking so bounds going up. The stubbornness is there too. So, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's nothing easy about it. So, um, uh, so we'll see as this team matures and these players get into a different place. You know, can Dagnault handle the social aspects, the personality aspects? But there's not much else we don't know. Um, I mean, we'll see how he does into playoff pressure. Can he drop these cool plays with 17 seconds left in a in a playoff game, that's a little different than doing it, you know, uh, 17 seconds left on a Tuesday night in Salt Lake City in in January. So, um, but e- everything's skyrocketing on Mark Dagnall. Yeah, he seems like the ultimate keeper. Only time will tell. It should be interesting. I'm looking forward to that article. Uh, make sure to bring up uh, Bruce Springsteen with him. I know he's a big Bruce Springsteen fan. That was a big thing uh, a couple months ago. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I'm sort of a uh, sort of a blank canvas on music. So, uh, uh, you know, the one thing I could tell him is that we got we actually have a guy on our staff who is so young he really didn't know who Bruce Springsteen Bruce Springsteen was. So, uh, I I will protect the guilty by not naming him. But um, but yeah, yeah. Let me tell you where I, let me tell you where I screwed up, Michael. Let me tell you a story. Last August, I went to Maine. My wife and I went to Maine. Our trip got, uh, we're coming home on a Saturday night. The flight gets canceled. We figured out the only way we could get home the next night to get over to uh, to um, New Hampshire, um, to uh, the airport in New Hampshire, about 90 minutes from Portland, Maine. So we get over there to Manchester, spend the night, and we get up, and we got all day to kill. So we go tour a little bit of Vermont and Massachusetts and come back to New Hampshire before our Sunday evening flight. I had lunch in Battleboro, Vermont at an Italian joint about 1 p.m. that Sunday. And then we got in the car and we drove an hour east to head back north to Manchester, New Hampshire. And you know where we turned up? Where at? Leashire, the uh, Leominster, the hometown of Mark Dagnall where his family operates an Italian restaurant. I was, I ate lunch an hour from there at an Italian restaurant. I could have had lunch at the Dagnall family restaurant. Had just mind blocked, forgot he was from Leo Minster. I'm adult. That would have been a, that would have been a great anecdote to chat with Mark Dagnall about. Well, we'll put that on the bucket list of different things we need to do here. <laughs> But Barry, thanks again. It's been fun. It's always nice talking Thunder basketball with you. Looking forward to your new pieces and uh, going forward. And also good, uh, get well soon to Joe Masato, who's been out, who I know he's feeling better, but uh, came down with COVID last week and is, has not been able to uh, cover the team for now. So get well, Joe, and hopefully he'll be back soon. Anyways, thank you all for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the Thunder Buddies podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us five stars on all those. Give us a great review. Um, I'll give you a shout out if you do. And we'll be back on Tuesday.